to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm CEO Dan Mariashin. Thank you for tuning in today. Recently, the White House announced that it would be withdrawing funding from the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees, otherwise known as UNRWA. Here to discuss what this decision means for Israel is today's guest, Dr. Asaf Romorowski. Dr. Romorowski is the Executive Director of Scholars for Peace in the Middle East and is a fellow at the Middle East Forum. He has co-authored a book with Alexander Jaffe on the issue of Palestinian refugee aid titled Religion, Politics, and the Origins of Palestine Refugee Relief, published in 2013. Dr. Romorowski is also a professor at the University of Haifa, and he has published widely on various aspects of the Arab-Israeli conflict and Zionist history. Asaf, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's begin, really, at, uh, at the beginning. Um, UNRWA was uh, organized, was founded uh, in 1948, 1949. This was after the establishment of the State of Israel. Uh, tell us something about how it came to be organized, and then if you could segue into why isn't the Palestinian refugee issue subsumed under the work of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. Great. Well, thank you for having me again. Um, the history of UNRWA really does relate, uh, is integral to the beginning of the end of the uh, Israel's War of Independence uh, in 1948-49. UNRWA comes about in 1949 and actually predates uh, the creation of the UNHCR, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. To that end, uh, they were able to uniquely define themselves because they predated any other refugee organization. Uh, and UNRWA uniquely defines an Arab Palestinian refugee as, and I quote here, anybody who was in mandatory Palestine between 1946 and 1948. And the kicker is, of course, and their descendants. No other refugee population has that uh, capability. So you have this lineage aspect that has played into uh, refugee numbers and in perpetuity, of course. The other element of, that is unique to UNRWA is that UNRWA was created as an Article 22 by the General Assembly. Article 22 agencies uh, have little really to no oversight uh, over what they do. It's based on voluntary contributions. Uh, to that end, they were able to uh, dictate and basically decide how they want to be and how they want to grow uh, as an agency. Uh, and so that's the beginning of the story. Um, many of your listeners may know there is a debate about how many refugees actually existed at the end of 48, 49. The scholarship differs. We talk about between 625 and 715 uh, as far as the number of Arab-Palestinian refugees. And today UNRWA talks about uh, that they're in existence about five to six million individuals, all demanding a full right of return, which is basically the uh, demographic uh, eradication of the state of Israel by fully demanding a right of return, which is why no Arab, no Israeli government left, right, or center would ever accept uh, a full right of return. That has been the raison d'etre of UNRWA, uh, because it's based on the existence of so-called refugees. So, of course, they've been in business now for seven decades. Very important point, uh, the, the use of the words and their descendants. So today, 
what what is the percentage uh, of the uh, actual refugees uh, among that uh, number of five or six million which they use? Well, so it's interesting. I mean, if you were to contrast you honor uh, with UNHCR, uh, UNHCR only gives the refugee title to one generation. So if based on the birth rate of the individuals of 48, 49, uh, we estimate there would be about 30,000. This also relates to the debate that's been going on in Washington now about declassifying the numbers, uh, that the real numbers of existence uh, post 48, 49. Um, and that's been going on for quite some time. To that end, even if one were declassified the number, which I am not minimizing, it still does not take away from the lineage aspect. The lineage aspect really allows this problem to fester and grow from generation to generation. But a full right of return, if you were to actually parachute the definition of UNHCR, would be 30,000 individuals and call it a day. Over the years, uh, the state of Israel, with brokerage with Western powers, has actually uh, agreed to take in more than that number, uh, in addition to paying some kind of compensation uh, for the descendants, but uh, but trying to end the problem, ending the, the, the refugee issue and ending the right of return. Any of those proposals actually has been rejected. Um, prior to UNRWA coming about, which actually was part of the topic of the book that uh, Alex and I wrote about, were actually about the Quaker involvement in the Middle East. The American Friends Service Committee predates UNRWA. They were the preamble to UNRWA, and they actually had responsibility for Gaza for 16 months. The Quakers actually proposed a proposal that was brokered with, at the time, Charette, who was involved on the Arab desk in charge of Arab-Palestinian um, Arab Palestinian issues. And they proposed uh, a proposal of the 625, 715, about 200 to 300,000. The only caveat to make that happen was to accept Israel's right to exist in peace. Of course, that too was rejected already in the 50s. I want to talk about the, the connection between UNRWA and the perpetuation uh, of, of the problem, of the issue, um, relating to uh, an Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Um, you, uh, you've written, you and Alexander Jaffe have also written very recently a piece in the Wall Street Journal on defunding UNRWA, which the administration has, has uh, proposed uh, it would do. Um, and I want to talk about this, this idea, not only of the, uh, the number of uh, refugees which they use, the right of return, which is really kind of the spear in all of this. And you talked about the, the objective here. Uh, if if um, there were to be a right of return and everybody were to return, there would be no Jewish state because Israel demographically, mathematically demographically, would be, would be overrun. But, but the, the agency has been used over all these years over all these 70 years, uh, as, a, uh, as a means of perpetuating the conflict. Uh, is it not correct that the, the High Commissioner for Refugees, uh, the, the Office of the High Commissioner, the, uh, the objective here is when you have refugees, to do what you can uh, to, to help them, but ultimately uh, that uh, there should be a path to, to the point where they're not refugees anymore, and, and that's what they do. They aid them. Uh, talk about this, this notion of perpetuating the conflict rather than resolving the conflict. 
sure. So what you have is actually, if you look historically back at American foreign policy, uh, the American foreign policy has been rooted in, in what I call the three R's, resettlement, repatriation, and reintegration. On all three accounts, uh, we have failed when it comes to the case study of, the, of, of Palestine, you know, American foreign policy and mandatory Palestine pre-Israel, and of course, when it comes to the Arab-Palestinian refugees today. Uh, the idea is that uh, the R, you know, within the acronym of UNRWA should have been about relief and resettlement. Uh, that, that has been trans and it has kindly been translated and reinterpreted as works, which is that W. And, it, and today really manifests itself in education. UNRWA's only uh, largest functionality is the, is the educational system. So the idea of giving refugees, as you alluded to, skill sets and the and tools to resettle, repatriate, and move on uh, is something that UNRWA has failed on every account. If you look back since World War II, there have been millions of refugees worldwide, all have been resettled, repatriated, reintegrated in their societies, with the exception of the Palestinians, knowing exactly there was a calculus here that was done by the Arab world. Understand that the fact that the existence of refugees is a consistent and ongoing reminder of what the Arab-Palestinian narrative receives as 1948, what they understand to be as the Nakba or the original sin, and the consistent reminder of that atrocity, quote-unquote, of course, is the, the existence of Arab-Palestinian. Refugees. It is a consistent evergreen reminder that what the world has done to the Arab Palestinians and, of course, really allowed Israel to come to fruition. So you can go back and, and every Arab leader going back to Nasser all the way to individuals like uh, Saddam Hussein and even bin Laden, who would make comments saying we're never going to rest until we solve the Arab Palestinian refugee problem, knowing all good and well that with the exception of Jordan, no Arab country has ever offered the Palestinian citizenship intentionally. And so when it comes to money-wise, the Arab world actually does pay a lot of money to keep the Palestinians and keep the responsibility of the refugees with UNRWA with the idea that they don't take responsibility for them or offering them citizenship. That's the, that's the, uh, that, that's the, that's the push and pull that plays out here. So anytime this topic has come about, of course, the Arab world, you know, shuts it down because they don't want to take it would require them to take responsibility for what took place in 48, 49. And they refuse to do that till this very day. But in fact, in fact, it, it's worse than that or it, it gets worse than that. The uh, educational system uh, that you cited um, has uh, has been used to uh, as a as a tool of of demonizing uh, and delegitimizing Israelis and uh, and the state of Israel and and then beyond that uh, we uh, have know of of instances uh, for example in the the two recent uh, Gaza wars where UNRWA facilities uh, have been uh, have been used uh, to store uh, weapons of of Hamas we we know of of some instances. Uh, where uh, Hamas operatives uh, have become employees uh, of UNRWA, and then it, it goes on and, and on. Um, uh, why, why is it uh, that uh, uh, 
the UN has allowed this to kind of go on in an untrammeled way. I mean, who, who oversees this operation and who is allowing uh, that kind of activity to take place? Uh, all, all, all good points and all correct points. I mean, it goes deeper. I would say, actually, that UNRWA today has become a shadow government for the Palestinian Authority. UNRWA is the largest employer of Palestinians in the tone of 30,000, and they're ensuring the fact that the narrative continues. The, the echo chamber in the General Assembly and in the United Nations, and I was alluding to the point about Article 22 issues, is that UNRWA basically has been able to uh, define and redefine itself. And so the, the perspective within the United Nations today, uh, as we know, and part of the animosity towards Israel, is the fact that on the flip side of the animosity towards Israel is holding the Palestinians in the gold standard and the fact that they are there, they are refugees, and it's all as a result of so-called Israeli atrocities and, of course, the fact that the West allowed this to happen. And so when there is really little to no debate uh, within the United Nations about the, you know, the, the perception and, of Arab Palestinian refugees as victims of the world, all being uh, perpetuated by this narrative. And so when people talk about this, and UNRWA is, very, uh, is able to uh, put this out there, they're talking about very fertile ground that people believe in this narrative. The wars you alluded to, uh, you know, there's a very clear calculus. Every time Israel finds caches of rockets in UNRWA schools, you have individual spokesmen for UNRWA who will go on Al Jazeera and other Western networks and say, you know, with a, you know, with arc, with kind of a uh, entire facade, fake dead babies and other kind of images showing this is what Israel does to the poor Palestinians. It targets schools, it targets civilians, it targets kids, it targets women and children, knowing intentionally, UNRWA does this intentionally, you know, by allowing itself to uh, be used for Hamas facilities, that when they fire out of those schools, Israel would have to retaliate or even push them into to give that impression. So that's the image that the world has when one says our Palestinian refugees. Beyond that, when people hear the word refugees, they have this cognitive dissonance that exists, you know, that they're living uh, in, you know, in, in squirrel, and of course they have no running water, and they have, of course, no Wi-Fi. But the fact of the matter is that these so-called refugee camps are actually suburbs of the Palestinian cities. And even if you go back to individuals like uh, the former um, legal advisor for Gaza, who actually wrote, authored a report, uh, James Lindsay, uh, you know, argued correctly back in, you know, in the 2000s that uh, most of these individuals have already been resettled. I mean, the, you know, the fact that we continue to grow this is mostly based on the fake imagery in order to give that uh, impression. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, I would go back to the education for a minute because, you know, you've talked about successive, we talk about successive generations of Palestinians who have been educated uh, in, these, uh, in these UNRWA schools um, and educated really uh, on the basis of hatred. And I think about uh, several years ago, if you'll recall, there was uh, an attempt uh, to introduce some kind of Holocaust education into the curriculum. Uh, to teach about uh, 
what it is that happened to, to the Jews during, during the Holocaust. And um, there was a, a, a tremendous uproar uh, that, uh, that, that this should not be, uh, be included. Uh, I, I don't recall whether ultimately uh, they, they succeeded in, in, uh, in keeping it out, but it points to the, uh, to the issue that, uh, of, this, of this single focus on uh, demonizing and delegitimizing Israel and, by extension, the Jewish people. Yes. I mean, the only Holocaust that the Arab Palestinians are willing to accept is the Nakba. Nakba is translated into Holocaust. And, and by the way, going back to my involvement and others in the Oslo years, every time we brought this up about the question about education and why not learn about the other, the response was no, because if you ever teach about the Holocaust or teach about the other, then that will take away and minimize from the real Holocaust. That is, of course, the, you know, the Nakba. There is a use of Holocaust inversion in Palestinian schools dictated by UNRWA, where, of course, every Israeli leader is depicted in SS uniforms, refugee camps or concentration camps. Jews are worse than Nazis. Jews are Nazis because they have experienced the, the Holocaust and are now doing worse things to the Palestinians. The case you are referring to, which I think was actually very relevant, was the case study of Muhammad Dajani. When Dajani was a professor at Al-Quds University, Dajani's major crime you know, was that he took a group of Palestinian teachers to Auschwitz and when he, you know, to learn about what happened in what, what happened in Jewish history to you know to kind of talk about reconciliation and understanding the other. When he came back, he was fired because he dared to break the echo chamber. And of course, Dajani now is in Washington uh, and out of the environment, but he's one of the kind of the third wave parties that were looking for individuals like him and others uh, who were looking for to find middle ground to have these kind of conversations. This is something that is never broken when it comes to the teachings of how Palestinian kids are being taught uh, and the incitement that exists within UNRWA schools and, of course, the mosques. Right now, that this is the only way to understand where we are today. And that is something that UNRWA uh, does, you know, uh, for years and years and continues to do so uh, based on their reading of the situation. One other point, uh, Asaf, on, on context, and then uh, I'd like to move to, to what uh, the next step should be. Um, the, the issue of, of Jewish refugees from the Arab world uh, is, is never part of this discussion. Um, it's, it's taken uh, the efforts of, um, of a number of, uh, of Jewish organizations and people who work on these issues to, uh, to try to bring forward uh, the um, the story of the um, uh, nearly 800,000 800,000 uh, Jews who fled uh, Arab uh, lands, uh, let's say between 1948 and the early 1960s. Uh, comment on that for a second in terms of how the this refugee discussion is is uh, really a case of imbalance. Yes, uh, 100 percent. There was really, as you as you mentioned, a, a double exodus. Um, of refugee numbers in exchange. Uh, the interesting part is that, ironically, the fact that the state of Israel comes about, then they say, well, you had a place to go to. So they, they, they de facto recognize the existence of the state of Israel. But the Arab world was smart. Uh, I mean, if you look at the case study of the Jews who were forced to flee from Iraq, 
after the Farhud and other places, they were actually forced to sign documentation saying you can leave here with one suitcase alive if you want to, but you have to sign this document never to ask for any kind of compensation or repatriation or any kind of um, you know documentation about uh, property that you lost in order to leave here alive. And so knowing exactly that there may be demands uh, you know, in future years. So they, they played that out very nicely. Uh, and, and the fact of the matter is that UNRWA, I mean, look, the interesting part about UNRWA's definition, there were, of course, as we know, there were Jews of Palestine and Arabs of Palestine in 46 and 48. Theoretically, Jew, Jew, you know, Jews could also demand or, or go to ask for UNRWA services, but of course, they don't fall into that category. Uh, Jews from Arab lands, um, Syrians, Iraqis, uh, you know, have tried to, you know, bring up this issue. But this is usually in the conversation flatly rejected because the outcome of the uh, of those who fled, they came to a Jewish state. And of course, the Arab narrative, you know, is based on the fact that these refugees are a consistent reminder of our robbed land. And so it doesn't go hand in hand with their perspective. And so this is usually shut down and not acknowledged at all uh, within the corpus of the debate at all. So let's talk about uh, next steps. Uh, where does this go? Um, wh- why wouldn't there be a move to to merge this program into the UN uh, H- uh, HCR uh, and have one program out of uh, uh, out of the United Nations doing this? And secondly, um, what about what about real reform? What about uh, the the education issues? And what about these these ties to to Hamas and to to other terrorist organizations? Um, uh, to say that that would be part of reform would be an understatement. That needs to be done. So, what are the next steps uh, going forward? Right. So uh, th- there are a few next steps that needs to happen. I mean, and, and what I call I mean, I was alluding to this before. UNRWA today has become a shadow government for the Palestinian Authority. UNRWA today employs 30,000 individuals. It's the largest employer of Palestinians. Um, many of those individuals, you know, and who deal with the you know, educational system, uh, case in point, the former superintendent of UNRWA was a former minister of education in the Palestinian Authority. These individuals should be civil servants of the Palestinian state to be. What needs to be understood, and really we never get to that point, to my mind, and what you know, Alex and I have argued for a long time in our writings, is the fact that um, really this is the crux of the issue. This is the one guarantor, UNRWA, and by extension the right of return, that the conflict will never end. Palestinian identity is synonymous to Palestinian refugeeness. It is at the juncture point of if you want to be a state, if you want to be a citizen, then you have to give up the refugee mentality and move beyond that. So what needs to happen is really, this is really the barriers of a democratization. You have to move on to make these individual civil servants. You really need to wean Palestinian society off of UNRWA. And you have to start breaking the monopoly that UNRWA has. UNRWA currently has a monopoly over all services, educational, health, uh, you know, societal, you know, in, in many regards. And so when UNRWA goes to Congress, which it does and, and has attempted to do now until uh, the, the current administration froze their money, is say, and all they have had said over the years is, 
we take care of the betterment of Palestinian society, write me a check. And for seven decades, we have. There is little to no accountability about where the money goes. There's a one big black hole that we continue to write these checks to. So there has to be a reform and breaking the monopoly of these services. Uh, I would say that, again, it's there's no magic bullet here, but you need to start breaking with, you know, you could look at potential other services. If you wanted to use United Nations, you know, you could use um, UNICEF for kids, WHO for doctors. Just try to even get a sense of a needs-based assessment of what needs to happen. Now, when one, when one you know, looks for a job with UNRWA, nobody ever asks that individual, uh, were you ever a member of an FTO, a foreign terrorist organization? Actually, that being a member of Hamas or Palestinian Islamic Jihad shows diversity. And so they have no, the, the watch list that Israel has and the United States have are much larger than the pool of people that UNRWA actually pulls from. And so, again, there has to be a change about who are they dealing with and going forward. But above all, really, the end goal needs to be ending the right of return. And ending the right of return in all the recent proposals over the years, going back to um, individuals like Ileana ross Leighton and, and former Senator uh, Mark Kirk, and even you know the recent bills of late, ending the right of return doesn't mean that people will stop receiving aid based on need, but not based on a fallacious status, which is what happens currently now. All you have to say is, you know, I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a refugee, and that's why they carry the keys, the deeds, you know, to give that facade of, of existence. But we have to move on in order to reform. If the end goal is a two-state solution, UNRWA basically today is an obstacle for that state to be. If there is a Palestinian that state that will come about, all these individuals, fine, go to the state that will come about. But today what happens is, is they try to play it both ways. You can, you know, you could look at every speech that Mahmoud Abbas has given at the General Assembly over the past few years. He says, I want a Palestinian state tomorrow, but I'm not giving up the right of return. It's a catch-22. And he knows that. And that's why he says it in order to give, again, the idea that Israel is the obstacle to Palestinian statehood, but at the same time, refusing to give status to and implementing the right of return. This monopoly needs to break. UNRWA needs to move out of the situation. And there has to be a beginning of a creation of a civil society, something that, you know, you know, Elbeat and I would say a little bit, you know, tried to create that infrastructure, individuals like Salam Fayyad. Uh, but, you know, the, the downfall of Fayyadism was that he wasn't able to take it beyond that. And so we need, you know, those, in, those institutions need to be built and created. Uh, and there could be other UN agencies in order to break this monopoly. But currently, again, this goes to any bureaucracy, they have no incentive to go out of business. And the pension funds that the employees, the international employees of UNRWA have, uh, not to mention the billions of dollars that we've invested in the agency, they don't want to go out of business. They don't believe that, uh, that, that their services should ever end. Uh, and when you ask employees of UNRWA, when will you leave, they will say, when there is resolution for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, knowing exactly that they are ensuring by their existence that the conflict will never end. And so that's how this game has played out for all these years.
Well, with that, uh, we'll have to conclude our broadcast uh, as we've run out of time. Uh, But, uh, Asaf, thank you for joining us today. Really, there's so much more to discuss on the Israeli-Palestinian issue, and we'd love to have you back. So uh, thanks for spending the time with us. Thank you for having me. And thank you, everyone, for listening to the podcast today. Please visit our website, b'neibrith.org, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, Subscribe on your smartphone through the podcast app for iPhone or through Google Play for Android. And lastly, tell a friend about us. For my guest, Dr. Asaf Romorowski, I'm Dan Mary Ashen. We'll talk to you next time on the B'nai B'rith International Podcast.